All right. You know, I have this question here that was actually asked me a couple of months ago, and I don't really think that I ever answered it. It came through the internet, and I I put it in the book so that I would answer the question, and I never did. And it was just uh, somebody who listens often enough to know that I contradicted myself in something I said. And uh, I had told this story about uh, music and the effect it has on consciousness and how music creates consciousness. And then music, let me just say, music affects your consciousness and our consciousness reflects music. What what am I trying to say? Um, That the music that we listen to actually will give us a certain state of consciousness, either up or down. So it isn't just a question of choosing what you like because you will become like what you listen to. And there was a period of time when people used to have these little, when the big, what they called boom boxes came out and people would just carry them on their shoulders and sometimes you'd just walk down the street and people would be listening and right in their ears to music sometimes that was just extremely dissonant from um, how it felt to me and how it looked to me. And I remember commenting to Swamiji, uh, seeing some of these, it was usually men, carrying these. And I would just sort of say, you know, the music they're listening to is so horrible, but they they just look like ordinary people. How can they be like that? And Swami answered me in a very serious way. He said, oh, if you could see their consciousness. And apparently, just because of this note here, that's how I usually tell the story, if you could see see who they are inside, is what he meant. But apparently one time I told it, I said, oh, if you could see their karma. So I was asked, what's the difference between, you know, seeing their karma and seeing their consciousness? And, of course, when you speak extemporaneously, you're not watching a, a little video thing where it's all right in front of you. Sometimes you just use words and you don't exactly, you haven't weighed and measured every word. But still, it's an interesting question because... When what he, what I believe he said is if you could see their consciousness, meaning that merely because they have a face that looks like a perfectly ordinary person, the fact that they're so deeply tuned into this extremely egoic, um, and in many cases very sensual, and in many cases almost violent sort of music, it's like that really is what they're carrying around inside of them, which is why mobs mob psychology can start and um, strange things, just very strange things can happen is because people are are carrying an incipient potential within them that something activates. Um, That's why Master recommended, and that's what we've been talking about in the conversation we're in, being very, very careful about exposing yourself. He specifically said you should never take a single sip of alcohol as an example. I mean, most people say, oh, a little bit doesn't matter. But he said, you don't know what you have behind you. You don't know what what your potential is. There's a story of Master, when somebody handed him a little baby, and Master said he almost dropped the baby because he saw that it was, as he called it, the carryover consciousness of a murderer. And so it was a little baby, but he had died. He had been a murderer in his past life. And it, it wasn't that he was innocent, it was just that he was too small to act on who he was yet. I mean, this is a very frightening experience for anybody who has children because, you know, they appear to be one thing, but the whole destiny is there. So when Swami said, or when I said for him, if you could see the karma, what Swami was talking about was if you could see the trajectory 
of their energy. If you could see the cause and effect energies that are already applying to them. Because all of us are, are born it, with momentum. I mean, by the, the moment we're born, we have all this force behind us. It's what brings us to our parents, to our country, to our culture, to our particular body. Whatever it is, all of that is a, a, a great determining force um, from the moment of conception. And, it, and it's all there. Master says life begins at the moment of conception and the soul um, d- is drawn into that particular sperm and ovum and into that particular womb because there's a huge force of energy that puts them right there. So all that karma creates your consciousness. So it gets a little hard to define exactly which ones you mean. But when Swami would see someone and speak of the karma they were carrying, he could just see all the forces that were pushing them. And that, of course, would create a certain vibration that would be their consciousness. So in the way that I was using it interchangeably, it really is interchangeably. Although normally when you're talking about karma, you're talking about uh, the cause and effect energy that's been set in motion that will then have inevitable consequences. You know, at the stage of life that I'm in right now, just the number of years I've lived on the planet, it's just really interesting to me how many things just happened that, that I didn't really choose, but the force was just there. Among things that I have noticed, I had many different inclinations and sort of potential avenues of self-expression, but instead I just went into an ashram when I was 24 and never came out, really. And, but it's interesting that all the little parts of me that were interested in doing different things, I sort of get, have gotten to do them. Um, I, was, I had a little run in politics, just not, not running for office, but doing political things when I lived at Ananda Village. We had 12 years of litigation, so I got to play at being a lawyer. I've had, always had this interest in theater, so we get to do these little plays and things, and I get to sort of play as an actress, and I apparently have this interest in fabric and clothes, so I get to make costumes. I like kids, so I get to play with children, but none of it like, has actually been the focus. The focus has been the spiritual path, and it's like whatever else is needed, it gets to be, it gets to be drawn into it. And that's, that's the karma that we're working with once you're sort of, especially once you really become centered on self-realization, it begins to roll out for you. You don't have to sit around and worry about who you're supposed to be. If you, if you just keep concentrating on being a disciple and a devotee, everything else that you're supposed to be also comes out. That's when people get, I believe, too worried about what their destiny is. And it, if you just concentrate on being a devotee, then your, devotee, your destiny takes care of itself because your consciousness is where it's supposed to be. So anyway, I found that email and I'd forgotten to answer it. Um, if anybody has any questions, we have a new microphone which has a very simple on-off button. So if anybody has any questions, we can just hand it to you and it should work effortlessly. This is our theory. All right. We were actually in the middle of number 398. And 398 was about wine, sex, and money. And we dealt with wine and we dealt with sex and now we're going to talk about money. Okay? So I I had read this out, but let me see. Um, Here it is. I'll read it again. 
People see the possession of money as a support for their self-confidence. It gives them the courage to express themselves fearlessly. In their overconfidence, however, they often blind themselves to other people's realities and become increasingly insensitive and unaware. So isn't that interesting? Master's definition of why money is a delusion is so much more subtle than you would normally think. He says money gives people, uh, it's a support for their self-confidence. You know, if I, and that's the connection between power and money. If I have money, I have power. And if I have power, then I can be more confident in myself. I don't have to feel like a small person because after all, I have money. And um, I don't move in circles where, I don't move in circles where people are rich as a rule. Sometimes people who have worldly success and wealth come to Ananda, but mostly they don't. Because people who are having a lot of worldly success usually like the world because it's working for them. And when you want to come to a path of self-realization, it's usually because in some way you can see that the world is not working for you. Now that does not in any way mean that devotees are incompetent. But, it, I mean, on the level of, of not just comfortable success, but, you know, the kind of wealth that is really impressive um, and becomes a thing in itself, it's, it, that's just a world that usually people who are that devoted to that side of life don't want to transcend the world. I, uh, I joke about Palo Alto itself, actually. When I, I moved here, I'd lived 16 years in Ananda Village, our forest ashram, and then moved here. I've been here for 30, so it's much longer now. But when we first came here, especially 30 years ago, you know, it's, it's a very refined area. Um, it still is. It's cha- the character has changed a lot in three decades. But it's, it's highly educated. People are very bright. There's lots of, lots of creative energy, incredible innovation. You know, the whole world has been run from the Bay Area for a very long time. And technology, art new consciousness. It just really happens a lot from here. And a lot of the money is, is self-made, which is, is a wholly different kind of money because when money is self-made, then the people who make it have a tremendous, as a rule, they have a tremendous sense of the flow. And they tend not to see money as a fixed reality, but as something that can always be created with creative energy. And so it makes it much more generous and much more interesting. Uh, people are just much freer and have much more imagination about how they use their money, which also makes the whole area much more interesting. So my comment was always that Palo Alto was the last desperate effort by intelligent, refined, educated people to find satisfaction in the material world by just doing it really, really, really well, culturally, uh, intellectually, socially, just doing it really well to see if it will finally make us happy. And we find out. We find out, Swamiji commented once, that we learn from being disappointed, but we learn more from being fulfilled. Which is a very interesting statement. Because if you long for something, and you don't get it, you may sort of come to peace with the fact that what you wanted didn't come to you. But there's always going to be a piece of your consciousness 
that thinks, if only I'd had it, I would have been happier. And so that, that's like a, a, a... In order to realize God, we have to know that the only thing we want is God. And if there's a piece of us that thinks, of course I want God, but if I had also been able to marry this certain one, if I had also had a child, if my daughter hadn't been so rebellious, you know, if only I had taken better care of my mother, if only I'd had more money, if only I'd been more beautiful, whatever it might be, there's a piece of us that's disappointed, that's reconciled, but still back in there wishes it had been different. As long as that's there, that's a a piece of your energy that can't be given to God. So we learn from being disappointed. It builds character. And we often transcend and we often find things that we wouldn't have found otherwise. But when we're fulfilled, when our desires are fulfilled, that's when we realize that even though I got exactly what I wanted, it still didn't satisfy me. And and that's a very different kind of transcendence. That's like, I've I've had this cup, I've drunk it to the bottom, I had a wonderful family, I had a wonderful career, you know, I I had the respect of people, I had the money, that's why I talk about Palo Alto like that. You get everything here. and, And you're just trying to find out if this will really make me happy. And at the end of it, you can say, that was nice, but there's something more. And then when you turn to God with that attitude, that's when you can really go forward. In the, in the Gita, it, it has the phrase, you know, Krishna says to Arjuna, what, what does it serve you just to suppress who you are, just to suppress your di- desires, to say, I shouldn't want it, therefore I don't want it. But if you do, it's just holding energy. It won't, it won't serve you. So that's why our karma compels us. That's where we find ourselves, you know, with a family or uh, with a job that we have to follow through or career ambition or parents that we have to take care of or whatever it might be. We find ourselves caught in circumstances that demand things of us that we may think we don't want to have to deal with, but being forced to deal with them finishes. It can finish. It can also just create more and more entanglement. But done properly, it can finish. That's what I was saying at the beginning. I've, I had these, I, didn't, I wouldn't even call them desires. But they were just inclinations in me. Things that I, I'm sure I've done in the past that were just not quite finished. And I got to sort of play it out. And I got to, I got to just play it out and be that person again. I used to joke about it, um, like to wear shoes that would click when you'd walk down the a tiled floor. I mean, I lived out in the woods for so long and all I ever wore was boots, you know. And then when we had to, when I had to play politics and had to play lawyer, you know, I had to wear shoes that clicked when I walked down the hall, <laughs> carry a little briefcase. And, but it was, it was like a, I could feel it. I could feel that this was something that was part of me that had to, it just had to finish itself. Another friend of mine commented that he could look in his life too. He was a scientist and he said he touched all the little things that he might have wanted, you know, uh, original research and patents and inventions. And he never, he really was a devotee, but he did a little bit of all of those things. And he, he could kind of see that he just was tying up the knots of that which was left. 
So now coming back to, you know, what we're talking about specifically about money, um, people with a possession of money as a support for their self-confidence. You know, I I haven't had, I, I have a lot of understanding of how we try to fill the hole in our hearts with many different things. But in this particular incarnation, I've been comfortable my whole life. I've never... I've never had to think about where money was coming from. I haven't had a lot, but I've never once had to even wonder whether I was going to eat or where I was going to stay or anything like that. So I really don't know what that deprivation would be like. But at the same time, it's, it's never been part of my thinking that if I had more money, I would be better off. You know, just, it just isn't the way I'm made. So I had a little trouble understanding it. But I just, it's so obvious when you think about it. Everybody is lonely. Everybody's insecure. Everybody wants to fill whatever is not filled. And it would be perfectly reasonable to think if I had, if I had money, then I wouldn't be so nervous. He uses the word self-confidence. But just confident in life, I wouldn't be so nervous. So we get fixated that this will solve it. It's just the same as thinking if I had a husband, if I had children, you know, if I were more beautiful, if I were any of those things, we just think it'll, it'll do it for us. And this, it's, it's, a, it's a strange world that we live in. It, I mean, just being a human being, being incarnated, I, the, the longer I'm here, the more, almost the word is bewildered I become by how just complicated Maya is. And it's so hard to really see past these things. And we just, we just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I, I feel so fortunate because I had Swami, you know, standing in front of me for so many years, just personifying this kind of courageous dedication to God that was so magnetic. It was so magnetic to see it acted out that it, it gave me confidence to feel that way. Um, but still you know, the, a common sense appraisal of the world looks different. It just looks different than what the scriptures say is true. And that's why the Bhagavad Gita says, what's day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. What's night to the worldly man is day to the yogi. I live now in uh, our community and I live in the house we call Chela Bhavan, which is a very nice three-bedroom house. It's, it's much newer than the other buildings. And I live in there by myself, but I'm never alone in the house because it's really the only guest rooms. So there's two guest rooms, so it's really almost constantly filled. And it, it, it's really, it was really interesting for me to move into that house because uh, I really didn't want to. It's like my ideal. I remember I was traveling in Greece. Greece seems like it was Greece. And there were these little monasteries. And there was this little stone room. This little stone room with, and in this monastery with a little water spigot out front. And I thought, ah, home. <laughs> you know, like my perfect dwelling space is this little stone room with this little spigot. I was on the Mount of Temptation in uh, uh, Israel. And it, there's this monastery just pasted on the edge of this cliff. And you walk down this little hallway and there are these tiny little rooms just on the edge of this cliff. And it's just like, ah, home. 
you know, so I move into this lovely three-bedroom house and everybody's thinking it's so great. And I think to myself, oh, Lord, you know, it has a yard, it has all these rooms. It's just like, it's just so much to take care of and so much to have to think about and just overwhelming. And it's just so funny because we're all different. Just to finish that, which is just sort of fun. For a long time, I've lived in that house now, actually almost 12 years. It's odd how time flies, because I moved in on my 60th birthday. I'll be 72 now. Um, and for a long time, I, I really didn't like living there. I mean, I, And I actively spoke against it, which seemed really rude. And the reason I live in it is because we need a community center, and there has to be somebody living in it who doesn't need privacy. I mean, I need my room, but I don't need privacy. I'm very, very comfortable with just people coming in and out. I realize that because as I do it. But I also realized, um, I, I have, I'm sure it was past life memories, and I think it was past life memories of wealth. Past life memories of wealth, where I had a big home, very big home, lots of rooms, lots of bedrooms, also had servants, which was nice. And I just ran this like sort of bohemian hostel for all the artists, you know, and I, my friends would come. I can, these are like semi-true semi past life memories, like they're apocryphal, where I just, anybody would come and so-and-so would be writing their novel and this one would be making their movie and this one would be, you know, working on their sculpture and their play and we'd all just come down to breakfast and the servants would take care of everything. And there was just this lingering desire to just have a place where especially artistic, creative things could happen and people could just come and go. And I realized that's why I'm in that house. You know, it's not, I don't have the servants and and I don't have that many bedrooms and there's no sculpture room and there's no ballroom for the ballets, but it's the same feeling. It's the feeling of just being able to have a, a very open home where lots and lots of people can come through and something interesting can always happen. But it's just like, we're, we're, we're pawns of our own karma. We sort of we think we're we think we're in charge, but we're really not in charge. We're we're just trying to sort of we're surfers is the word Swami uses, which I think is actually the very best. Sometimes they they talk about we're just on the train, and our only freedom is to walk to the front or walk to the back. But the problem with that image is that there's no artistry in that image. You just walk to the front of the train, you walk to the back of the train, and you're, you're, you're really helpless. You're really, you're a non-contributing factor. Passive is the word. But if you think of a surfer, where the wave is what carries you, but in, I mean, I don't surf, but I've, I've seen, of course, we've all seen people do it, where there's a tremendous amount of involvement in understanding what the wave is going to do and where it's going to go and how you balance and how you turn and where you catch it and where you land. But you're not creating any of that trajectory. You're just aligning yourself with it. But how you align yourself with it or fail to align yourself with it determines how the whole thing turns out. Same could be said for skiing, coming down the hill, which I've done just a little bit of skiing you just, you know, you, the hill is what's moving you. Gravity is just moving you. But how fast, whether you crash, how gracefully, there's a, you have to be constantly involved in this. So the world appears to be one thing. Let's, we're talking about money. 
where you where it appears that you could do all these things if you had money and all these things would be different if you had money and I would be confident, I would be capable and I would be safe, I would be secure. Just all these different things that the heart wants and people would like me more and I could be more beautiful and I could, you know, even buy friends even though you probably don't think of it like that because I could do things for people and then people would like me. I mean, there's just lots of ways that, that it would work. But he says, and then what he says, but what happens is, in their overconfidence, and he doesn't explain it, but overconfidence because it's based on an external reality. So it isn't really the confidence that's based on my own sense of self-worth. It's overconfident because it's not an integrated confidence. It's a confidence because I have this money. I've noticed an odd thing about some people, especially people who have inherited wealth, which is very different than earned wealth, is um, I've, I, in, in a number of cases where I've known people who've inherited wealth young, they never actually, many of them never actually develop a very strong character because every time it gets difficult, they can just use their money to do something else. You know, they can move, they don't have to persevere in the work, Often they can separate from a relationship. They can just use money to escape circumstances. So you know, is this good karma or is this bad karma? You know, it's, it's really hard to know. It depends on what the goal is. You would think all that freedom would be good karma, but that freedom also can cause them to actually never develop any inner strength. So when he says, in their overconfidence, because it's not grown from the inside, it's pasted from the outside, However, they often blind themselves to other people's realities because they don't have to tune in because they can just do what they want. They don't need other people in a certain sense and become increasingly insensitive and unaware. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, these are uh, the other reason to sort of hear all this is because if we ourselves have money or have even some money, you, know, you just want to ask yourself... You don't want to fall into a delusion that will cause you to create bad karma for yourself so that you will become impoverished the next time around. You know, it's, it's, all of this is really tricky. I've had a, a lot of fun with the fact I inherited, not by any means generational wealth, but I inherited my father. My father earned money at the end of his life, and when he died, the three children, we got enough that it was, it was fun. And uh, most of it, went to, to do various things for Ananda, including publishing all the books that I've written, including the last one. It was published by my father's money. And um, when Swami was living, I used that money to travel to where he was and often to pay for his travels and so on. I had a fund and he kept living and living and I didn't know if the fund was going <laughs> to... I didn't know if he was going to outlast the fund, but we made it. We made it together. Not that I wanted him to pass, but it, you know, we made it to the end. But uh, uh, let me just think what I was going to say. But it was such a pleasure for me to realize my father was not on the spiritual path. He was a good man. He was a very honest, a very honorable man. He raised me very well. And he worked and earned that money. Um, but he gets all the good karma of, of all the good spiritual work that his money has done. Because I didn't earn it. I just spent it. <laughs> I spent it on spiritual things. I spent it on Swamiji. I helped Swami in various ways with my father's money. 
but my father earned it. So, you, you know, these are, there's just different ways in which uh, the karmic blessing gets passed on. Uh, Swamiji used to tell us when, it's so funny to me because now I'm on the other side of it, but when, when we were in our 20s, we had this big problem because our parents were so freaked out about what we were doing. You know, we just, most of us were, had very promising futures in the world and we just chucked it over to go live in this primitive community really literally for God knows why. I mean, fortunately we were a generation doing it, but it freaked our, a lot of our parents out quite a bit. And uh, let's see now, what was the point? And so we were always having to deal with it. And I remember Swamiji was very definite. He told us, you know, Master said you should spend Christmas in a spiritual atmosphere. And you shouldn't go back to your family if they're worldly and just waste the power of the spiritual holiday in a worldly way. He would say, go home for Thanksgiving, but stay at Ananda for Christmas. And a lot of times, you know, people's parents would get real upset about that. And Swami's answer was really simple. He says, their egos may suffer, but their souls will rejoice. Because if, if you do something uh, strongly spiritual, then everybody who is close to you will also be blessed. Master actually said that, that when a soul is self-realized, seven generations are blessed by that. And we, we thought, are seven generations liberated? And, and Swami said, no, he said, it's sort of like if someone is elected president of the country, the whole family gets raised up a little bit. <laughs> but I, I was thinking about that in terms of my own family. I, my sister is a devotee, she's on the path. But my brother and my parents were never, my brother's open, but my parents were never interested at all. But I can tell that their lives were changed. And I really can't point to it exactly, but I just know it's true. And then I thought of this with my father's money, that somewhere the karmic cycle will bring him prosperity or will bring him some kind of spiritual blessing because through me, um, because when, I, you know, when the money goes to Swamiji and then it helps him, everybody he touches who's uplifted, you know, like the television shows he did in India, for example, which is one thing I was able to help him with, it's just like millions of people were touched by that. And it was paid for by my father's work back here. Isn't that sweet when you think about it like that? I mean, this is what money is for. But there's this other side of it. It makes us insensitive and unaware because we get engaged in it. And we think this is mine by right. And we think that it's important that I have the money because money and power get really, money and power get really mixed up together because money can give you power but money, the kind of power that money gives you is not the power necessarily of your actual soul and spirit. Now it is your, maybe your karma to have the money, but it gets to be very dicey. So he says that you become increasingly insensitive and unaware because you don't have to be, because you can always make it happen your way. And it, it's, it, you know, the, the part that money plays... Master has this expression, every good, noble, or philanthropic enterprise in the world sooner or later comes down to a matter of money. It's really quite a statement. And then he says, making money honestly and industriously is the next greatest art to the art of realizing God. 
which is also really interesting, because in order to activate the laws of magnetism that will increase the flow of money, you have to be very in tune, you have to be very concentrated, you have to master yourself, you have to be very aware and sensitive, you have to have all, all the right attitudes in place. That's why it's such an interesting part of life. And that's why we're so dependent on it, because it forces so many things to happen. And that's why we imagine that if we had more money, it would be easier, because we're forced to have to face so many things if we don't. And you, you can see how all of that's less sensitive and less aware. You know, most of the time, well, I, don't, I can't speak about it too clearly because my life, I'm not, I have good prosperity karma and I'm a very good fundraiser and I sort of understand it to a certain extent, but I haven't earned in this lifetime. Although I remember in the midst of building all of this, working to make all of this happen, I remember laughing to myself once, wow, if I were just doing this for myself, I could be so rich. <laughs> I, I've joked about Swami Kriyananda uh, when I was writing some promotional material for he wrote he wrote material at success and happiness through yogic principles it's a 26 26 lesson course it's a superb course I, I, I have a whole class on it it's a podcast not a not a video um, I, I don't know if it's really on the podcast place yet or you have to find it through Ananda Palo Alto and you have to sort of keep going until you find audio tapes. And, I, and someday, and I hope soon, it'll be on a podcast site. I, there's been, we've been working on this for a long time and it keeps not getting done. But anyway, but going through that course, Swami Kriyananda, what, what I wrote is that Swami Kriyananda earned millions of dollars in his life. Millions. Millions and millions, really. But he never kept any of it. So we called it the greatest rags-to-rags story (laughs) because (laughs) if he had kept it, you know, it would be rags-to-riches on an incredible scale. But it was just rags-to-rags because it was only, he only wanted it to pass through him so he could make all this work happen. But he understood how to do it. It's just, you know, hard work, magnetism, focus. They're, they're, They're very closely related but part of it is the selflessness and the generosity. And there's also an interesting thing that Swami said somewhere, is that whether or not you have material success depends on your generosity in past lives. Isn't that an interesting statement? He just made that as a, just a, a flat statement, which also implies that your prosperity going forward is going to be how you use it. And if you use money generously, then it given to you more to those who have more shall be given to those who have not you know if you're hoarding and think in terms of lack so anyway we all know money's a big story so money's the third one and so then master goes on and as for sex people say it releases them from mental tension and in that way it clears the mind this release too however is temporary abuse of sex has nothing but deleterious effects. The long-range effect of all of those so-called fulfillments is that they dull the sensibilities, over-sexuality, intoxicants, and, and overconfidence because you have money, I guess is how you would call it. 
at wrong use of money would be the right word for it, is that they dull the sensibilities. It's a very interesting way to think about it. You know, everything... When I've had to teach spiritual teachings in settings where I couldn't be as explicit about the guru and about God and about Divine Mother, and also when you're teaching, when I've been teaching uh, beginning classes, which I, you know, like Meditation One and introductory classes, introductory to this path, which I've, I used to do here, and I do sometimes when I'm, I'm traveling, depending on where I am and what's going on, when I have traveled. Um, so, you, so you try to find words that have exact meaning for people. Because the word God, in English, has, has no actual meaning. It just depends on what theology you're, and how you were raised. You just don't know what you're talking about. Sanskrit words for God are multi- multitudinous, and they're specific. Ananda is a word for God. It means bliss. Prem means divine love. Shanti means infinite peace. And, and you, you know, when you say peace, people may still have different feelings about it. That's why in the Bible it says the peace that passeth understanding, which is bigger than just the kids are all finally in bed and I can put my feet up and turn on the television, which is a kind of peace, but it's not shanti. Um, But at least they conjure up something that is an actual experience. But the word God doesn't. It just is there and you either think about it or how you think about it. So I've always liked to describe the path in terms of ever-increasing awareness. In fact, if you think of all of life as ever-increasing awareness, it becomes suddenly very um, uh, practical. It it moves completely off of the abstract. And it it moves it completely out of belief or theology or anything like that. And you don't don't even have to be thinking about self-realization. You just think about even from a baby. I mean, what is it when a baby is born from the beginning? The baby's trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. I, I, I've told this story before because it was so much fun. This family that lived in Ananda village when I was there, they had three children, and their youngest was this little boy named Daniel. And Daniel was about two. He was completely, you know, uh, he could move around and do everything he needed. He had some language, but not too much. And I came to visit to have dinner with the family. They, I used to visit them often. And Daniel was so excited because something so terrific had happened to him and he just really wanted me to know about it. So he dragged me all the way upstairs to his bedroom. And he, his mother had a very or, kept a very orderly household. And he had this drawer. I, be, I seem to remember. Maybe it was his bureau, but it might have been under his bed. He pulled this drawer out and it had his socks in the drawer. And he pointed, and he just, in the loudest voice, he said, socks, like this. And I acknowledged that, yes, indeed, there were socks. And then he pushed the drawer back in like this, and then he looked up, made like, you are not going to believe this. And he opened it again, and there were the socks. And once again, he screamed in triumph, the socks. We did it about three times. And I realized, like, this is a big deal for a kid. I mean, like, where do socks come from? Where do socks go? If I want socks, how can I find them? Because how would he know? How would he even know what socks are when you start? You know, the children try to eat them at the beginning. He's progressed to the point that they know that they relate to his feet and that they come and go. And now he knows where they are. And every time he opens the drawer, they're in there. I mean, really, in Autobiography of a Yogi Master talks about 
the early triumphs of childhood and how our, our self-confidence and our sense of ourself is really built on this one success after another. You know, I can put on my own socks, mommy. I know where they are. It looks like nothing to us, but he's expanding his awareness. You know, and then that awareness progresses. He can walk around the neighborhood. Then he can find his way to school. Then he can read. Then he can find out why the boys like him or don't like him. He can discover that he's strong and he can, you know, punch the other kid out and get what he wants. I mean, these are all... And then he can become more aware of the fact that nobody likes you if you do that. But all of this is expanding awareness. Look at our own lives. You know, I, 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 this is the job that I, I'm really talented at. I need to not be afraid of my boss. I need to speak up. You know, this is the kind of partner that would really serve me. This is what I need to do to make my son happy. And what is it? We're all ever expanding our awareness. And each time we cross over into something that we didn't know before. You know, and, and one of the things that's just been so extraordinary for me since now, actually, I met Swami Kriyananda in 1969, so this is also my 50th anniversary from the day that I met him. And uh, uh, I didn't know when I started with Ananda how long it would last. I was only 24, but... I'd sort of run through a number of things already that were supposed to last longer. You know, certain colleges, certain relationships, just things that were supposed to go on longer than they did. But they just, they got finished a lot faster because they didn't work. They, they ran out for me. So I didn't know whether Ananda would run out for me. I mean, how would I know that? But one of the most extraordinary things about it is that it's, it's, it's more interesting and more expansive to me after 50 years because it's, it's infinite, literally. So every time I reach a certain level of awareness, it's just like, oh, that, all that gives me is the awareness of what's beyond it. It just goes on and on. Uh, I've, I've been passing out this video, which I'm just going to repeat it here because you can go find it. It was, I believe the man who recorded it, his name is David Goldman, I have no idea who he is. He's not a personal friend. He's obviously a disciple of Ramana Maharshi, who was a great sage. And there's always been this fact about Ramana Maharshi's life that I always knew. I've I've been to his ashram once, and before 1969, before I met Swami, I I read a lot about Ramana Maharshi because I was reading a lot of things. And there was, in, in his life story, there was a cow named Lakshmi, who was one of his devotees, who he said became self-realized from the body of a cow. And they have a little samadhi mandir, a maha samadhi mandir at the ashram, where Lakshmi's buried. I don't know if she was cremated or what. But there, and it, it's a place where they have aritis, and you know, it's just like she's considered to be a self-realized disciple, but she, in her incarnation, was in a cow's body. So, I have always known this story and I saw the mandir and it's fascinating. Well, someone sent me this 37-minute video done by this man, this British man named David Goldman, who sits on a little bench, apparently in the cow area of the Raman ashram, and because there's like these two or three cows sitting behind him the whole time, he tells the whole story of this cow. And it is incredible. 37 minutes, it's worth every minute. He's a good storyteller and they have photographs. 
this cow was, I mean, how did this cow get to be liberated? One of my friends wrote back to me. And, and then actually what they say is, and they're pretty sure that they know who the cow was in the last lifetime. And she was a very advanced disciple. Or she was a very simple disciple. But very devoted. And even though it was never 100% confirmed, everybody seems to think that this woman just came back as a cow. And one of my friends wrote back to me, brilliant, he said, no parents, no responsibility for children, no ashram politics, nothing, you know. And I thought, yeah, I guess so. But Ramana Maharshi says, the two things that David Goldman says, Goldman, I think that's his name, Fuelka Lakshmi the cow, um, he said, uh, wait, no, just a sec, I lost the thought. Oh, he said that the only thing that Ramana ever said was, in certain circumstances, animals can be liberated. Now, in this case, if it was a high soul who deliberately chose this for God knows what reasons. And then he said, in certain circumstances, plants can be liberated. Plants? Like, I thought, well, maybe the, the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha was sitting when he attained enlightenment? Or what? I mean, okay, the whole point of all of this is, what do I know about the spiritual path? Not very much. You know, I just don't even know how to think about all this. But it just tells you that there's an infinity of greater awareness that we just don't have. I mean, I didn't even, I wouldn't be able to even think clearly, like, well, this tree that's sitting out in the courtyard here. I mean, clearly that's not an ordinary tree. And it's had this wonderful life. It's been part of a church for who knows how long. I, it was probably planted. Maybe they built the original building in 1940, 1950, around that tree. You know, when, when we came in and remodeled the whole courtyard, I mean, there was, you know, there was a brief discussion about whether we would take that tree down, but nobody could really think of taking that tree down. So, I mean, like, who is that tree and how did it end up being there? Is, is that tree actually making spiritual progress because we're all meditating around it? You know, you just like... I asked Swamiji one obscure question about something or another having to do with Babaji. And I remember he, would, he just turned to me. He just turned to me and he went like this. You know, he just shrugged his shoulders and raised his hands and said like, who knows? And I didn't even speak. He just kind of went, oh, who knows? And then he, he was having breakfast. Then he went back to eating his breakfast. It's like, how do we know? There's so much that happens. And, and so, therefore, and this is really where I was going with all of this, the long-range effect of these so-called fulfillments is that they dull the sensibilities. And anything that dulls your sensibilities, you don't want that. Because everything about life is ever-expanding awareness. And, and see, you, you get this really simple equation and you don't need a lot of philosophy and you don't need any beliefs. You just begin to watch if I'm more aware or less aware. I never, I, my family never drank. We were, the family was complete teetotalers. Thank you, God. And I never had much interest in any of that. I mean, in college I did a little and I was more... You know, I was more in the marijuana, LSD world than I was in drinking. But nonetheless, whatever I did of all of that, which was all a really long time ago, I realized very quickly 
that as soon as I did something that messed with my mind, all I would do is just look at the clock and wait for my mind to return. And then I thought, this is really probably not worth doing because it was just no fun. I didn't really like having my awareness dulled. And that's, that's the fundamental, that's the, that's the whole thing on the spiritual path. One thing I noticed about Swamiji is Swami really didn't like to have his awareness dulled. Meaning, like, I can sit down and watch a couple of movies. I can lie on the bed and read a novel all day when I'm just really done in. I like, I like low energy entertainment. <laughs> you know, there's just times when I just want to go down. I never saw Swami do that. Swami would read. Swami would occasionally watch movies. But he never, he never quested after oblivion. Whereas I, I feel myself at times questing after oblivion. That's why I say I have a great sympathy for sex, wine, and money. I understand the quest for oblivion. I still think oblivion is pleasant. And I watched that Swami did not. Un- under no circumstances did he enjoy it. Now, I'm, I like being awake a lot more than some people. One of the reasons I loved being around Swamiji is because you, you had to be right awake all the time. First of all, because it was so interesting. Something was always going to happen. And also because he was really sharp. And if you were not wide awake, you could, you could end up feeling pretty silly. <laughs> you know, It wasn't that he would try to embarrass you, but you could, just, you could end up feeling pretty silly. But that's what, we're, that's what the spiritual path is. We're trying to expand and sharpen our sensibilities. And so anything that takes it away is really the enemy. And so that's what he's saying here. He said, um, those three delusions are the greatest because though man is subject to countless other delusions, oh, so helpful, Master, thank you for telling us, these three of them all are the most addictive to the mind. And so they're, they're the way the mind escapes from itself. And that desire to escape from itself rather than to rise into the greatest self is what makes them so serious for us. Okay, let's take a little break. It's really, I was just apologizing to the people who watch live stream. It must be very frustrating to watch us laughing and talking and everything interesting is happening while it's muted. <laughs> Pardon me? Well, well, we can always just suddenly go X, you know, cross it and <laughs> stop it. Like, you know, put up a thing like that. <laughs> but I do feel sorry for the people watching who are just watching all the good times happening and you're left out, so there you have it. <laughs> okay. So, does anybody have any questions or comments before we, any, anything at all before we move on with this? Okay, so we're going to get to number 399. The master was never opposed to marriage as such, although he may sometimes have seemed to be, because in speaking with the monks, he tended to make light of the so-called <clears throat> fulfillment of wedded bliss. Excuse me. <clears throat> you know, it, and a lot of this book is the notes that Swami took when he was talking to monks. So that is, I mean, I've, in other parts of this book where we've dealt with the issues of marriage and Places in this book when I've had to talk about uh, marriage and so on, I've had to try to make a balanced story. At the same time, a lot of the really blunt things he said, he really said. And so there you have it. So he, even though he tended to make light of the 
so-called fulfillment of wedded bliss. On the occasion of our first meeting, he told me about a young couple he had known to whose wedding feast he had been invited. I didn't really notice until right now. It was on the occasion of our first meeting. It's interesting because Swami writes the story of his first meeting with Master um, in the path, but he doesn't include this part of it. Well, I know now from writing a book about Swami that you can't include everything because the, the story just bogs down. You just have to keep going like this. So, so that's why he wrote this book, was because it was everything else. As he said himself, that the energy level of the path or the specific theme of the essence of self-realization, which were the two books he wrote of words of Master prior to this. So this is everything else. Because in the path, he talks about Master asked him, Master asked him directly, of sex, wine, and money, which of those delusions hold you? And Swami said he's never been interested in wine and he's never been interested in money, but he said honestly that sex had his, had his mind more than the other two did. And then, but he, was ne- he said to Master that, you know, he was never interested in marriage. And then Swami, so as not to appear judgmental, said, I'm sure it's fine for some people, but it's never, it's never interested me. Swami's destiny was so different. He just couldn't imagine just settling down and having a little house and all of that, a little family. It just was not his thing. But Master said it's not as fine for very many people or something like that, some uh, so-called wedded bliss. Master gave a very... Um, he gave a very strong answer to Swami when Swami was trying to be fair-minded. Master knew he was destiny was a monk, and he supported him in that. Um, so now he says that Master told him this story, which is really quite a story. And this is the wedding feast to which Master had been invited. Everyone around me was saying how ideally suited to one another these two were, he said. I could see, however, that it was all a show. When someone next to me praised them too fulsomely, I said, let me show you something. I mean, this is quite a story Master's telling. A young woman disciple was attending the feast. So would this have been in America then? I was just realizing this, or would this have been in 1935 when he went back to India? A wedding feast is more of an Indian concept. You don't, in America, you don't think of weddings as a wedding feast. But if it was a young disciple, Master left there when he was, you know, 25 or something like that. So maybe this was 1936 when he went back. A young woman disciple was attending the feast. She was quite attractive. I asked her to sit near the groom and gaze at him steadily without saying a word. (gasps) So mischievous. Pretty soon the groom had eyes only for her. His bride at last rose to her feet in extreme distress and dragged him out of the room. He looked back and called out to this young woman, I'll see you again. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine? Oh, just... Uh, I mean, Master just... He just did what God told him to do. That's how he put it. He just... If God told him to do something, he did it. Everyone present was shocked. But what did it matter when, when the blow fell, really? It was bound to fall sooner or later. Oh, people who actually... Oh, you just can't. 
you know, we're all so staid in the way that we behave. And when you hear Master just doing something so outrageous, just blowing apart a wedding feast on purpose because he knew it was hypocrisy. Why would he not? I mean, when the blow fell, it was going to fall. Why not sooner rather than later? Why let them get all involved with children and everything else and then find out that there was really nothing going on there? Why waste all that time? He just wanted people to be free. Wow. And Master goes on to say, people who actually do find happiness in marriage don't find their happiness from one another. Always it comes from inside themselves. How sad it is to see the suffering people go through just because they base their expectations of happiness in other people. Mm. Oh dear. Okay, let's just move right along. I don't know what to say. (laughs) I mean, we spend all our lives trying to pretend these things aren't true. You know, this is one of those things that we just keep trying. I was speaking to someone recently. You know, relationships and marriage and family life, it's, it's, the, huge, it's the huge challenging area for, for these generations, you know, these hundred years or so. We're just not, we're, we're an unstable culture. We're, we're reinventing everything. And there's just, there's just no stability anywhere. I was reading something, was it in here? I'm just trying to remember where Swami talked about, where would I have been reading it? Swami talked about how unstable, just can't, can't quite remember where I was reading and I'd like to be able to remember. But he was talking about how unstable relationships are right now, that people start together and, and, and it's a positive and they are together but then their paths diverge. And then people find themselves just, they, they were well matched, and then they're terribly matched because the paths diverge. It's not just that one becomes spiritual and one doesn't, but one may remain wide awake and active and one becomes gradually duller, you know, or, or one develops bad habits. But he said, it's because the age, it, the age itself is so unstable and we're in such a time of transition that, that people's lives are just constantly shifting. And in, in once, he, sort of, he said, once we're through this period, which is not just our lifetime, but this planetary period where we're shifting from Kali Yuga into Dwapara, and we, we're just everything, we're completely unmoored right now. He said, then it will, it will become more stable again, and, and people's paths won't, won't shift so radically in the course of one lifetime. Because I, I remember reading somewhere, um, um, this was about, it happened to be about India, but it was about the modernization and the complete revolution that's taken place in that country. And there was this family that like, for five generations had been itinerant storytellers. And now all the sons had gone to drive cabs in Bombay. I mean, it's just like, there was no reality anymore. And for five generations, that's what the family had done. But now it was just gone. Everybody's watching television. And, and it's, they're, they're driving on highways, and it's just a completely different thing. And that's, that's what we're dealing with. That, that just there's no, um, there's no rules. There's absolutely no rules. Especially 
on the west coast of California, you know, and the east coast of America, you know, the, the two coasts of America, which are always, you know, breaking the boundaries first. But just, you can be anything. You don't, you know, nowadays you, you don't even have a gender. Somebody gave me the word, I think the word was cisgender, if I have the word correctly, which actually means <laughs> to identify with the gender of, your, of the body in which you were born. They had to create a word for that because things were so like that. Because otherwise, as someone said, otherwise you would call that normal. And no one wants to call that normal. They want to be able to call anything normal. So you have to... I mean, I, I on a certain level, just as a wordsmith, I thought it was fascinating. And also as a, an observer of culture, I also thought it was fascinating. As a... Uh, what do I say, as a priest, I thought it took my breath away and not in a particularly good way, but it's just like anything, anything can happen now. And so therefore there's just nothing, there's nothing to support us, absolutely nothing. So everything just goes, it keeps topsy-turvy. And that's the good news, because whatever you have, you have to create it from the inside. So are we better off when the church tells us we'll go to hell and everybody's too afraid to sin? Are we really better off when we're hypocritical? Are we better off when we're being absolutely sincere but crazy in the sense of um, not necessarily knowing which direction actually leads to happiness? And so that's a lot of what's happening Especially, I was saying, starting to say in terms of relationships, that it's just people are just having to invent from the inside out. I was saying I was having a conversation with someone and just saying, you know, that the, the situation the person described was common. It's not common when it happens to you. It's agonizing when it happens to you. It doesn't matter how many hearts have broken. If it's yours, it's broken. But it was entirely because there was no point of inner strength. That's all. It was just this constant thought that as soon as I get this or this or this or this, and in this case it was an attraction to have a partner of a certain kind, and as soon as I have that, then I'll be okay. But it's not really the way things are. It's that the happiness comes here, and then you can give it. I remember I, when I used to do a lot of relationships counseling, I've sort of grown weary of it honestly so I just don't do it anymore but um, let's see now that was a point I was going to say hmm that's funny it went completely out of my mind hmm I just don't know but there was another part of it this woman wrote to Swamiji once and um, she said uh you know, I, I keep wanting, I keep looking for something that will awaken my enthusiasm. He said, you have to give enthusiasm first, and then you'll find that something will awaken it. You know, that's just, that's, that's just where we have to work from. And, and this idea that I don't, have to, I don't have to be happy because something else will make me happy is the whole spiritual path. And that's ever-increasing awareness. And people learn from suffering. There just doesn't seem to be any way around it. So, wedded bliss, there you have it. Let's hope for the best.
Those who actually do find happiness in marriage don't find their happiness from one another. Always it comes from inside themselves. That's what he says. Okay, number 400. I met a saint once in India, the master told us, who asked me if I was married. When I said I wasn't, he replied, you are on the safe side. (laughs) Better stay that way. First have God. After that, whatever happens to you will be all right. (laughs) This is the way they talk. And then the saint goes on to say, I myself am married, the saint continued. My wife is very materialistic. Thank God it no longer bothers me. I have fooled her. She doesn't know where I am. (laughs) Inside, he was always with God. This is a story that Master and Swami used to enjoy, both of them used to enjoy telling. He said, uh, you know, she doesn't know where I am, meaning that my body is still present, but my consciousness is somewhere else. And so she's having her materialistic life, and he's having his spiritual life. And they're together, but they're in different realities. She, she thinks he's doing one thing, and he's actually doing something else. And it's, you know... What, what am I wanting to say? For most people, and this is, this is very interestingly, this is in The Holy Science by Sri Yukteswar, which is a book that I have not studied and that I don't know because it's a, it's a profound book and I don't want to pretend that I've actually studied it because I never have. But I read, I've read parts of it. And, and I'm going to paraphrase this because he's very succinct. But this was the thought I got from it that's always been very helpful to me. In the, in, he, he's writing about parallel realities between East and West, Christianity and, and Krishna, and Christ's teaching and Krishna's teaching. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, is what Jesus said. And Sri Yukteswar is talking about purity of heart. Purity of heart is way back when I way back at the beginning of this class when I was talking about if we think something else is going to make us happy, then our heart is holding on to that. And when he says purity, what he means is that nothing, nothing, we long for nothing except for the experience of God. There's no, um, no uh, materialistic, no external desires interfere with our true nature. Purity is just our true nature. So anything we're longing for pulls us away from that. So the reason that the pure in heart will see God is because nothing is going anywhere except toward God. We, we, have, we have completely come back to our center. We have surrendered all of these ideas that our happiness will come to us from outside. And we have completely relaxed into who we really are. So he says in there, and as I recall, and I probably have it not quite accurate, but this is essentially it. He talked about, I believe, like five stages of the purification of the heart. And in the first three of those five stages, the purification takes place in interaction with other people. Because that is when we learn, isn't it so? I remember this woman. She was perhaps one of the moodiest people that I knew. And she got married, and she got married rather unconsciously, and it was not a, not a very compatible match. But I don't think she could have made a compatible match. 
because she was so moody. And as soon as she was living with someone, all of a sudden this incredible cycle of moods that she was always going through, she, she didn't know that she was moody because there was never anyone next to her to reflect it back. And I remember her saying to me, she, she just basically had no idea that she was so moody. She just followed her own rhythm and she lived by herself and all of a sudden there's somebody reflecting back. So in countless ways, we all discover when we're in close relationship, and it doesn't have to just be a romantic partnership, but we're in close relationship with people, all of a sudden we see things about ourselves that we didn't know. I've often, I grew up in a, a, an intellectual household in which my brother was actually a debate, he, he went, debate was his um, extracurricular activity. We lived in Texas. My brother was Texas state debate champ twice. Texas is a big state. I mean, so he was good. I did it a little bit, but I, I wasn't bad, but I didn't have the passion for it that he did. I was too, I was too lazy to study and to research. I could talk, but the rest of it was not fun. But our family kind of dynamic was like that. We were a Jewish family, and sometimes Jewish families are very intense like this. I was 50, 50 years old, before I found out that debate and conversation were not the same thing. My conversation was to line up all my arguments, to stack them up and present them. And I didn't realize that that's not how you start a conversation. <laughs> you like, you listen, you offer a little, you interact. I thought you just put your story out there, then you waited, then they put their story out there, then you responded. I mean, that's how I thought it was. I just didn't know. And I realized why well, a lot of people didn't like to talk to me. <laughs> But I, I just, interactions with people. So coming back to Sri Teshwar, he says, basically, that our karma compels us to interact with people. And so we find ourselves, we find ourselves, you know, in a family where marriage is arranged. We find ourselves falling in love with someone eloping. We find ourselves accidentally pregnant, and then therefore we have to raise a child. We get born into a family of, of ten siblings, you know, and we just have to live on top of each other and all have to get along. It's just all these different things happen or we find ourselves the eldest and the parents die and we have to raise our brothers and sisters. And there's a part of us that wants to think, oh, if I could only be free of all this. But Sri Yukteswar says that for the first three stages of the five, if I have the numbers right, we are compelled to be in close interaction with people. And only after we learn all that that can teach us, are we allowed to go away and be solitary? I mean, and, and, you know, you could become monastic, you don't have to raise a family, but nonetheless, we're still compelled to interact. Because until we've, until we've mastered all that that has to teach us, it won't serve us to, to go away. All it does will delay it. It'll just be dormant in our chakras until we have the opportunity. So, you know, one's desire to have a family, to be married, to have lots of friends, to be social, to, you know, to be in community, all of these things. There it is, right in Sri Yukteswar's book. Of course we have to do this. So even though Master makes light of wedded bliss and makes mockery of that particular marriage, he also said those who find fulfillment are those who understand where happiness comes from. And how do we find that? 
Well, we find that by being disappointed, don't we? We find that by holding these expectations, having the experience, and then becoming more aware. And it it doesn't necessarily make us, you know, close up. It makes us realize, oh, if that's what I want, this is how I have to get it. This is where it will really come from. We have examples, we have learning, and just step by step. And you can't rush it. I, uh, you know, the, the cycle is the, ap- uh, the, the apple seed becomes an apple tree, but it has to go through every single stage between the seed and the tree. And so what happens to us is we see, you know, what the tree looks like, and that's what I want, but we're not looking, we're not looking at where we are in that spectrum. We're just thinking, I just want to be here. That's, it's, I mean, it's nice to have a, a, an ideal image, but sometimes I see when people are, have their eyes up there, they don't know where their feet are. And, and they're just stumbling around and not walking, and not even walking toward where they're going. So you, you have to hold out the ideal, but then also recognize that the only way I'm going to get to it is from where I am through every stage that it takes. And this way, when we have catastrophes, one after another, we, we just have to realize it's the only way to get there from here. I mean, it's not, it, 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 sometimes it's small comfort, but it's real comfort. If there were any way to get, if there were any other way to get where I were going, where I, I want to go, except this way, then I would have done something else. <laughs> but if this is what's happened to me, this is my route. And it, it does give us a way to keep, to persevere, even when it's difficult. So, I think that's it for tonight. Thank you all very much. We won't have class for two weeks. I'll be away next week, and the the week after that, we're having so many visitors at the community, it's not possible. Then there's one, I think then there's two more classes before I go away for two months. So, thank you all very much. Oh, yes, I will read the number. It was... I did the last half of number 398 and 399 and 400.